More specifically, responsibility for the convoy releasing the landing craft at the right place and on time rested with its 30-year-old navigating officer, Lieutenant Commander Nigel Wilmot. Wilmot had visited Rhodes in peacetime, but his view of his task was shaped more by what he had witnessed in Norwegian waters earlier in the war. Many of the vessels lost on both sides at Narvik in April 1940 had foundered on unseen obstructions grounding amid uncharted shoals, or holding themselves on rocks marked on no map. And those ships had had expert navigators. Wilmot was only too aware that few of the landing craft which he would be dropping four miles offshore at night had compasses, and that none of the officers steering them would be trained in pilotage. For despite Britain's long military and naval traditions, the truth was that it still had a great deal to learn about cooperation between the two arms. Wilmot's uncle had taken part in the last major amphibious landing at Gallipoli in 1915, where the assaulting troops had been slowed by barbed wire hidden in the surf. Now Wilmot worried that he could give the landing craft no information about what they might find if they actually reached their designated beaches. Aerial reconnaissance only showed half the picture, it would not reveal the sandbar that might convince a helmsman he was in the shallows, only for soldiers laden with kit to plunge off the ramp into deep water. Nor could the survey of Rhodes Coast, which Wilmot had recently made through the periscope of a submarine, tell him whether sand at a particular spot lay fourteen inches deep, enough to bear the weight of armour, nor where the enemy had concealed their pillboxes. The Navy was Wilmot's career, and accordingly he made decisions cautiously. Yet there was a side to him that was open to possibilities which eluded others. As a young midshipman, he had had his fortune told by an old woman in Ceylon. She had predicted that a great war would come, but that he would survive it in the desert. His shipmates had laughed, pointing to his sailor's uniform. But here he was with a cushy berth on the staff in Cairo. It was this same willingness to look beyond the obvious that now persuaded him that whatever his superiors thought, cordite would fail, and with catastrophic loss of life. The only way to avoid that was for him to see the beaches for himself. When Wilmot first suggested this to Bailey Groman, he was rebuffed. He knew far too much about the operation to risk being captured. Yet he was sure that sooner or later the army would want better intelligence about the places where it was to land. So certain was he that, although he disliked swimming, he started a training routine. In the early mornings, while the sun was still below the pyramids, he did twenty-five laps of the Cairo Club baths, practicing sliding silently through the water, as if approaching a beach watched by sentries. The call came earlier than he had anticipated. There was a panic on. The plans had changed and the army needed to know if they could land tanks below the town of Rhodes itself. By the next day, Wilmot was in Alexandria, negotiating passage in a submarine. His intent was to row between it and the beach in a rubber dinghy, swimming the last hundred yards or so for greater stealth. The flotilla commander pointed out straight away that a dinghy would not fit through a submarine's hatch. Instead, he had another suggestion. A few weeks earlier, a large and rather mysterious body of troops had disembarked in Egypt. 
and they were now encamped north of Suez at Cabrit. They were commandos. There had been much talk about this new organization since its formation six months before, but no one seemed to know what commandos actually did, or indeed how they might be used in North Africa. One of their sections, however, had contacted the submariners to explore the feasibility of making clandestine landings by canoe. They were currently training on the Great Bitter Lake, where Wilmot was introduced to their leader, Captain Roger Courtney. The two men proved to have very different temperaments. Wilmot had an ancestor who had won the Victoria Cross in the Indian Mutiny, but he did not see himself in the heroic mould. He achieved results through planning and dedication. Courtney was, by contrast, in the words of one of his men, a grown-up boy, with the adventurous outlook of an Elizabethan privateer. Now nearly forty, Roger Courtney had...